time for Type 40, a Doctor Who podcast from the Spacebook for the Fandom Podcast Network with me, Dan Hadley, Birmingham's King of the Geeks, and your angelic host this time. Now, it could be you're completely new to the show, but it's just as likely you've been aboard before. But whichever, you'll be safe in the knowledge. This is the free-speaking, big-thinking, eclectic and eccentric show for everyone. Whatever decade or century you started watching, reading, or listening along to the ongoing adventures of our hero, Doctor Who, and with a new season currently premiering on BBC One and broadcasters and platforms all over the world, we're making our way through the rest of the six-part run known as Doctor Who Flux, being sure to uh, stop off for refreshments and merriment along the way, as always. So come and step into our TARDIS and share this journey together here with us on Type 40. And here we are entering into the second half. We're just past the midway point, aren't we, of Series 13 of Doctor Who since it came back. The whole Flux thing, it's the brainchild of outgoing showrunner Chris Chibnall. And after initial, if not promise, then probably relief, (laughs) that Doctor Who seemed to be heading in the right direction again, shaking off some of the intolerable bogging down of the purity of its storytelling, really, with um, all those masses of politics and identity politics. The last time we got around the the mics and the webcams, things did seem to be looking a little like they were going in the right direction. Things then took a turn for the worse with the risable Once Upon Time, that third episode. Nevertheless, we are pushing on that's myself and my co-host, that distinguished gentleman, the original lunatic, Mr. Simon Hall. Do you know, I don't think I've ever, ever been called a distinguished gentleman in my entire life. So I'm going to have that one. Thank you very much. Do you know, it's funny. I still I still have to do a double take. Every time anybody says Doctor Who Flux, I have to just stop and, and listen. Sorry, what did they say? Who thought Flo- Doctor Who Flux was a, good, was a good name and it wouldn't get hijacked by, by you know, people I with dirty no minds? no idea. Like, the memes hit Twitter and Facebook, I think, within seconds of that breaking. <laughs> it, it was just to talk about a home, home goal. I mean, it really was just a home goal, sort of saying, let's just come up with a, with a one name that people are going to be able to use to sort of knock yeah. us for and make fun of. Yeah, that'll do it. Flux will do it. It's just like, what can you do? <laughs> for all that the trial of a Time Lord didn't roll off the tongue as such, you know, it's very evocative, and I'm not sure that yeah. Flux is, but maybe time will tell. The trial of a Time Lord... It has it has a certain majesty about it, a type of yeah. like the trial of a time lord. And okay, it doesn't quite roll off the tongue, but then there are Chibnall, a lot of Chibnall titles are a lot, lot more wordy and, and, and difficult to get your mouth around than mm. the trial of a time lord. And as I say, at least it does have some sort of it has a feeling of gravitas about it. It feels as though it's going to it what it expects to be taken seriously. This is serious stuff. Whereas flux <laughs> just sounds i don't know what it sounds that's the problem I, it, it 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 evokes are you suggesting nothing. that it could end up being quite bland and yeah. forgettable in it time it just doesn't well yeah because the trial of a time lord you know riding with that one that that, that we've just touched on now which is the, which is in many ways the closest that we can get to with flux because Definitely. of the fact that it was this season spanning arc the trial of a time lord at least makes me sit up and listen and think okay that intrigues me what's that about whereas flux just 
it means nothing to me. It doesn't evoke any interest in me. It doesn't make me want to explore the idea. It doesn't instill any any curiosity in me. It's, as you say, it's just planned. You're in luck, my friend. I can come to the rescue with... Okay. I think what you need is an aid to the memory. So you're never going to forget this joyous time, the six weeks in your life that has been <laughs> Doctor Who Flux. Help is at hand from Zavi. They are putting out some exclusive merchandise connected directly to Ooh. Doctor Who Flux in the form of these T-shirts and sweatshirts. No expense has been spared there. Not at all. <laughs> in uh, dragging and dropping, quite literally, the, the artwork, the what they call the key art associated with Doctor Who Flux yep. there from, from various yep. posters. It's kind of like having a tour T-shirt if you've been to, say, Glastonbury or whatever else, a festival. You want a, a memento? Yeah, I mean, part of the problem with this artwork now is we're just so bored, brainless. We've been seeing this artwork for months now, yeah, are, and it yeah. is the only artwork that exists for this entire series of Doctor Who. And so we're just bored, brainless with it. And as you say, it really is drag and drop. It's not like it, they've even they've literally just cut out the screenshot and stuck it on in a box. It's it's weak. I think we could call that weak. I think it's the kind of thing that would be put put together by the office junior. Yeah. Uh, just before they head off for lunch. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yes, before we get too deep into the actual episode we're going to be talking about, because there's a whole chunk of uh, yeah. Doctor Who goodness to get stuck into, you have to you have to issue some disclaimers when you w use phrases like showrunner, arc, goodies, <laughs> <laughs> goodness, all those things. You really have to do it with the tongue in your cheek when you're talking about this stuff. But yeah, if you'd like to do some real-time travelling of your own, each and every edition of our show, past, present and future, is just a tap or two away if you know where to look on the device of your choice. Dozens of great conversations, reviews, previews, geek outs and deep dives with all our regular faces and voices and panellists. We know there's something for every Doctor Who fan at type40.podbean.com there'll be a few more words about all of that a little later on as well as when we make contact with the matrix of all knowledge to us that's the fandom <laughs> podcast network for a word about all the other coverage of all the other geeky pop cultures genres and universes that are going on on all those other shows over there I think we've uh, prolonged the uh, the agony for long enough <laughs> or have we because you know even in a season like this there's bound to be one or two that may may hit a six you know maybe some that that uh, tickle that sweet spot or that part of you that connects with the classic doctor who show or parts of new doctor who that you've come to love, you know, when we when they bring out new episodes, you think, oh, that reminds me of this or that or the other. Maybe this one will be the one for you, Simon. Maybe it worked for you out there too. We're gonna to find out, we're gonna get stuck into Village of the Angels. This is the fourth episode of series 13 of Doctor Who Flux, written by Chris Chibnall and Maxine Alderton. And in case you can't remember exactly how it went down, it was a little like this. It's Devon, November 1967. A little girl has gone missing whilst Professor Eustatius Jericho is conducting psychic experiments. Another unforgettable character name there from the mind of Chris Chibnall. And in the graveyard in the local village, there's one gravestone too many. 
Why is Meditan known as the Cursed Village? And what do the Weeping Angels want? Village of the Angels was first broadcast on the 21st of November 2021, and it was again directed by Jamie Magnus Stone. So this was the third of his episodes. He was directing half, and then the rest of them have been directed by somebody completely new. A director, I feel, has certainly got some talent and brought some sense of grounding to what has been a, a concept and a season which has really pushed the high fantasy elements of Doctor Who right out there, hasn't it? I think I think what it's trying to reach for several things at once, which is causing it problems. But if there's one word that I will use, without irony here, I do think that Doctor Who Flux has been quite quite audacious in what it's attempted to do. Yeah, I think that will be uh, a fair summation, I have to be honest. Yeah, audacious is a good word. Um, quite daring. It's, it's, it's tried <laughs> to... It's done what Doctor Who always should do, which is trying to reach beyond its reach. Because even it. though people have accused us of being a little bit set in our ways on this show, I think really that... Us. <laughs> I think that, uh, you know, all joking apart... For the most part, we do want Doctor Who to change for the times and to move on and to grow and to become synonymous with a broader general pop culture landscape and ideally to set trends rather than to follow them. Because that's I think that's really what how Doctor Who marked itself out in certainly the sixties and probably in the seventies, from say the mid eighties onwards, I think it was looking in a different direction for inspiration than than other shows and franchises. I think that with the Chris Chibnall era, he bogged the early seasons down with other issues rather than looking towards his audience and to the possibilities for the show as a format. But now we're getting to series 13 and he's just got these six episodes. It feels like they're being crammed full of what I think we've all said before, Kyle, you, Charlotte, throwing everything at the wall to see what sticks under the pretense of fun. Mm. But I mean, there's more to fun than just being fast and furious, isn't that? And being oh, being silly. And I like a bit oh, of silly. Don't get me wrong. I mean, the thing is, with you're right. With the early Chris Chibnall series, uh, I, I honestly feel, and I would say this to Mr. Chibnall's face, he lost sight of what Doctor Who was about, which is damned good storytelling, um, and he got caught up in what he thought Doctor Who should be about, which was politics. Yeah, you know, ideology, politics to race, politics messages, basically. You know, to give Chibnall his his due, that isn't unheard of within Doctor Who. We know Barry Letts in particular was very, very keen during the John Pertwee years to to push certain agendas, but he didn't push them from the point of view of of making them front and center in the story. They were very much secondary issues that you could pick up on if you wanted to. And also, he wasn't banging a drum as to what you should think. Uh, Barry Letts a merely... crucial difference, isn't it? Yeah, crucial difference. Barry Letts would present ideas as starting points for you to think as an audience member about what you might perhaps be thinking, as opposed to hitting you over the head with it. That means that Chibnall just lost his way and forgot, in my opinion, and as I would happily say this to him, he forgot to tell good stories. The thing is with Flux now, we've had, well, we will have had six episodes that do feel your right as though he's, he's he, I don't know whether it's, a, it's sort of almost a panic mode, but it feels slightly panic mode that just flipping it, just throw everything at it that we can possibly think of that, that reminds people it's Doctor Who and hope for the best. And 
the the one thing that I would say, just briefly coming back to episode three for a second, because the whole point with Flux is, you, you to an extent, you can't look at these stories in isolation. It's been pushed as a six-part story. And so we have no to point. look at it as a six-part story. And so I'm sorry, but when you've only got six episodes to write, you cannot afford to and you have no excuse to write a throwaway episode. Episode three was an insult to the viewing public who have paid for this show to be made. And, yeah, and and there's no excuse for it. When you've got six to deliver, you've got six episodes to deliver, and you're seriously telling me you haven't got enough ideas to fill six episodes, so you do one that's treading water. No excuse. Do you think that it may have all fallen down simply because Christian Blore has chosen to write them all himself, that that really hasn't helped his case? <laughs> that could have exposed him a little. Well, I think, I think you're right, Dan, in that... We, we've been quite outspoken in the past, and again, I would be outspoken now and say I honestly don't think Chris Chibnall has got enough ideas in his head to create good Doctor Who. And and I honestly just simply hold episode three up as the prime example of that because. And the reason I'm so I'm so still so angry about episode three is that as we talked about previously, so I won't go over this again. But as we talked about previously, you can do quite happily and quite legitimately an episode that that um, doesn't actually further your story. But it's got to be an entertaining episode in its own right. It's still got but to have worth. It's still got, got to, to satisfy. That's the, prime, that's the perfect word, Dan. It's got to have worth. And there is nothing worthy about episode three. It is merely filling 50 minutes of television. It's treading water in the worst possible way. It's just, it's just wasting time to get from point A at the beginning of the episode to point B at the end of the episode. There's nothing else within it. And the only way I think that Doctor Who has sort of evolved under Chris Chibnall's uh, stewardship has been in in baby steps, and often it's been one step forward and two steps back. And this is a, a prime example. I mean, I noticed that this is the first time that shares a writing credit on Village of the Angels mm -hmm. with Maxine Alderton. Now, some of you, you may recognise the name or you may know where she's from, but she's uh, she's just popped out of your your brain entirely, Simon. Yeah, Maxine no, Alderton is Never a British of. screenwriter and she's best known for her work on Doctor Who, really. Is Even she? though she's only written two episodes of it. <laughs> it, it seemed, that seems a little unfair because Maxine has written over 100 episodes of Emmerdale since 2013 oh, and won the Best Writer Award at the Royal television society yorkshire awards in 2017 she also uh, wrote the first two seasons of the children's show the worst witch okay but uh, last season on doctor who she contributed the full script that was on the haunting of villa diodote two episodes from yeah. the end it sort of kicked off that lone cyberman storyline it was the one that was all about mary shelley and they were on the banks of the yeah. lake and, you know, the, there's a big old house and the storm outside and all that so there was, there was a few sort of horror tropes in that i think that that's also true of this i did find with that episode last year that whilst it was again far from perfect the characters the cast of that particular episode did seem more rounded now, i think that was the case I think that was the case in this episode too. I think she's helped balance out Chibnall's writing because the man cannot build characters, the regular cast in particular. And so there, there are at least 
some people in this episode that I felt, even if they weren't completely as full as a Russell T. Davis character would be, or even a Stephen Moffat character, by the end of the episode, I felt I knew who they were. And I even remembered some of their names, which has not been a given in this show. But it began with the resolution to, uh, to uh, again, another really strong cliffhanger. The angels, or well, one particular weeping angel, is in control of the TARDIS. It was a, it was a roaring cliffhanger, wasn't it? it it's not going to uh, reinvent the wheel with that. But yeah. the art of the Doctor Who cliffhanger, I think, has been one that the new series, for understandable reasons, has chose not to sort of go back to and to and to refine and to repeat. But bringing it back for six episodes of flux most of the cliffhangers have been quite strong and this was uh-huh. and this was particularly particularly good i thought well well shot and everything but yet again it gets resolved in the blink of an eye doesn't it by pushing a couple of buttons on the console the blink of an eye did you do that deliberately very clever uh, you <laughs> drop these jokes yeah, in. oh yes that was completely deliberate <laughs> <laughs> Um, I mean, interestingly, for me, the, the, actually, the, the, the cliffhanger didn't work that well. In the, yeah, it was, it was a good cliffhanger, don't get me wrong. The, the reason I say it didn't work that well was because it wasn't a surprise. I wasn't surprised. There was no shock. No. We've been building up to this true. kind of thing. We, the, the Weeping Angels have been kicking around literally since episode one of Flux. Now, had we not known that the Weeping Angels were not were coming back and had we not seen them planted in previous episodes and suddenly we're presented with a weeping angel in control of the TARDIS now that would have been a cliffhanger well in earlier episodes we've got black goo squirting out from under the TARDIS and out of its various crevices and doors popping up everywhere so I had wondered was that was this just the clincher had the angels been trying to secure the TARDIS for some time it seems not (laughs) Well, the one thing I will say is I, I liked all the stuff about the black goo coming out oh, of the nice. and all that kind of stuff. And I hope to goodness, I'm, I'm putting my trust in Chibnall here. You better you better tie that one up, Chibnall. I, I, I don't want that to just be ignored by the time we get to the end of episode six. Let's just not have it as just some degree of weirdness within the TARDIS. I'm praying that there is just some resolution with that and we just refer back to it rather than just black goo for no reason so i trust him that he will resolve that by the end of episode six it, it, it just seems that the resolution to episode three just felt a bit like yeah okay i, I could have get if you'd if you'd asked me a couple of episodes back what might be the end of episode three i, I might well have said well there'll be a, a weeping angel in the tardis do you know what i mean it wasn't that shocking yeah. it's not it's not like the end of earth shock episode one is it let's be honest you know let's get down to brass not, tacks no. <laughs> So, and the so, fact that she's just expelled by the Doctor rebooting the TARDIS. The, well, yeah. I mean, how absolutely, Dan? How exactly did that happen? What 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 was this expulsion? One minute we're supposed to believe that the Doctor is clearly um, absolutely panic-stricken that there's a Dalek, a, a, a Dalek, a weeping angel in charge yeah. of the TARDIS, and the next minute, oh, she's gone. So that was all right <laughs> then. So let's have a cup of magic tea. Magic door. What was the panic? Magic button. What was the worry? Why was the Doctor even worried? Uh, it, it, it becomes lazy story storytelling. And again, to be clear, we have had this in classic Who before. So I'm not I'm not saying this is me. I'm not laying this purely at the door of Chibnall. It has happened previously. Um, with no, all to be honest, Simon, at face value, I wouldn't I, I wouldn't even have a problem with that. But no. what I have noticed is that with these cliffhangers, certainly the few up to now have been strong. But when we've gone back to them, 
they've all been resolved in a very similar way or not resolved at all in the first one the doctor just wakes up somewhere else completely cliffhanger hasn't really gone anywhere yeah and in the end of the second episode she just walked in a slightly different direction it's really really strange it's as if they can build and build and build but it's considering it's all well considering it's all being written by the same bloke Mm -hmm. you know if it was being passed on to another writer you know if you look at the star wars sequel movies for example the uh, the jj abrams movie and then the ryan johnson movie the last jedi it's 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 clear that jj abrams built that up to the cliffhanger of luke skywalker reappearing and being handed his lightsaber and then yeah. for the second film, the second writer and, and director team decide to do something completely different. Yeah. And so that sort of gets thrown away in yeah. 10 seconds in a very similar way. And yeah. but of course, because there were two different teams working on those movies, you think, oh, maybe it's understandable. It's not an ideal. And it certainly doesn't work, but it's understandable. With this, it's the same guy. <laughs> not chimney. Absolutely. And so the, the problem is, I mean, it was it was uh, Terence Dix famously, uh, who undoubtedly is one of the best writers to ever work on Doctor Who. And he always used to joke about that with one single bound, the Doctor was free. Um, and that's exactly what this is. It's just paint yourself into a brilliant corner, create a potentially good cliffhanger and then just basically say the that's it we sorted that was it no no you know no no resolutions or no thought went into it whatsoever it's it's with a single bound the doctor was free again and it's just it's you can do it it's fine you do it if you want to but it will it, it will lead so many more. times you can do that before yeah. even the children watching feel short the few children that are watching yeah just think oh, i know exactly how this is going to go they just can't invest in the count in the character that's anymore. right and you can't invest in the in the situations either there's no reason to feel, I mean, I can remember, for example, with um, to pick one example from Classico, I remember the, the cliffhanger to the end of um, one of the episodes of the Pirate Planet, where the Doctor is pushed out of the bridge, off, has to walk the plank, and he's pushed off the edge, and clearly go. That's it. He's gone. He disappears. And I remember spending an. I remember watching that when I was a kid. How, how on yes. earth are they going to write <laughs> that one out? And. Okay, it maybe isn't the best resolution, but nonetheless, it's imaginative. They it's do come and over. Simon, I think that's that's the difference. That's the difference. It's an imaginative resolution, and you might look at it and go, oh, "Okay, that's a little bit desperate," but it doesn't matter. The, the, Douglas Adams, as the writer, put some imagination into it and came up with something completely wacky and off the wall, and. In that context, it works. Whereas with this one, and with so much of Chibnall's writing, it's just. Well, it doesn't really matter. In that respect, it's insulting to your audience because it's saying, well, it doesn't really matter. They'll just watch it anyway, as long as it's got some weeping angels. <laughs> they don't matter. They don't care about the detail. Well, actually, we do. Well, speaking about things that don't really matter, that almost go to say. Yeah, it's, uh, as ever, we've got Jodie Whittaker playing, supposedly playing the Doctor, at the centre of this with, uh, with Yaz, played by Mandip mm-hmm. Gill, and uh, Dan, Dan, I keep kind of calling him Dan Bishop. Dan, as Dan Lewis, as played by John Bishop. <laughs> so that's the central cast again. Is John Bishop or Dan, either of them, are they, any of them warming to you gradually now, Simon? Is he, is he getting somewhere with this character? Not really, not really. I mean, the truth of it is, I can fully understand why you're getting confused with the name because at the end of the day, let's be honest, he's just playing it's John Bishop. Like, yeah, uh, he just yeah. is playing John Bishop. There's, he's not playing a character. He just is playing himself, and it doesn't. And to be honest, you can't lay all of the blame at John Bishop. A lot of this, no, is I don't. I don't really lay any any blame because yeah, because Chris Chibnall clearly has cast John Bishop and has then written the part as 
beautifully played by John Bishop. So uh, he hasn't created a character, but I feel, I feel really sorry for John Bishop, to be perfectly honest. So even, do I. Even... And in this episode, he got to sort of just hang around, yeah. walk behind Mandip Gill as Yaz, and that was largely asking questions that yeah. she didn't really need yeah. need asking. It was all it's all a little bit thin and he, it's, it's as if he's thin. just there as you say to be to be a familiar face and to ground yeah. the show because the supposed lead he... cannot do it yeah I, I honestly in all honesty i don't know what he is there for because being being oh gosh brutally honest for a moment yeah uh, is it jazz or yes i always forget is it jazz yes. or yes yeah, it's okay. See, it's so forgettable. I literally can't remember the name of a lead companion. That's terrible. Uh, so Yaz really is the person there who is there to feed the lines to the Doctor to say, Doctor, what's going on? So we just don't need another character like that. I mean, going back again to Classic Who just for a second, if you look at, for example, the season 19 um, TARDIS crew, which has always been criticised for being there too many of them with Tegan, Nyssa, and Adric. At least they had different characterizations. Um, and so they weren't all doing different the dynamics same thing. between different them. Different dynamics. Whereas with this, as I say, John Bishop literally, what bless him, has been handed a poison chalice because what is he there for? Even his relationship with is it Diane? His, his supposed love interest back in the real world. Even that's it's clearly there just as a bit of oh we oh let's give him a, let's give him a, a bit of a love interest. That, a bit that of a, is supposed a to be not just love interest. I think it's supposed to be human interest as well. Oh, is that what it is? And I think that uh, John Bishop kind of comes alive more so in those scenes. I think it's partly because the actress he's working with, directly opposite in those, is also she's a very similar kind of actress. She, yeah. She's also very down to earth. But it's She's also good, because actually. I like the her. things that they are asked to say are things that John that John Bishop can actually wrap his head round and understand. Mm-hmm. Whereas in all the rest of the scenes, a lot of them he's got his hands in his pockets. He's just walking around, he's grinning, just shuffling along. Yeah, I mean, I have to pick to... up the paycheck, and I don't blame you at all, yeah. John, not for one moment. No, no, no. The cast, the rest of the cast, is filled out with a, a group of actors who were largely pretty good. I thought there was somebody called a, a young actress called. Poppy Polyvinicky playing uh, the little girl Peggy. Mm-hmm. It was Blake Harrison from The Inbetweeners played a character called Namaka, who was a kind of, he was a, I don't know if you call him like a serf or a, a slave on a faraway distant world in a story that ran alongside to this, featuring the character of Belle, again played by Thaddea Graham, who I, I do like, but I'm still not really sure why we're supposed to care about her really. Uh, there was uh, Penelope McGee played Mrs. Hayward. Gemma Churchill, I think Gemma Churchill is a lovely actress, I've seen her in lots of things. She played Jean, and Vincent Brimble played Gerald. And there was the Reverend Shaw, played by Alex Frost, and uh, Claire Brown, who we met in the Halloween Apocalypse in that mysterious scene in the street. Claire's in this again, played by Annabelle Scully. But on top of all that, we get a bit of a bit of a Doctor Who legend and an actor who has gone on to all the all manner of things on stage and screen in the years in between his Doctor Who appearances McNally back in Doctor Who playing this Professor Jericho character and he's wonderful in this as well isn't he he is wonderful and who would have thought you know that, that looking back at the twin dilemma and him in that awful awful foil outfit um, who would have thought <laughs> all these years later that we'd be looking at him again in Doctor Who in, in such a completely different role and I have to be honest Dan he was the joy of the episode to me and, yeah, and do you know what this yeah. breaks my heart because 
wouldn't you rather see Kevin McNally as the Doctor? Doesn't he look, doesn't he act so Doctorish? Wouldn't he be brilliant as the Doctor? The word that you always use whenever we talk about this, Simon, is gravitas, and Kevin McNally has it in spades. He has it in spades. And what's interesting, he didn't have it in spades in The Twin Dilemma. There's no two ways about it. So you have to ask the question of, is gravitas just something whether you like it or not just comes with age and when you are a young actor and as much as I adore Peter Davison in the part of of the Doctor as the Fifth Doctor I I totally take on the, 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 the complaint that maybe he was too young and we'll bring a lot more gravitas to the role now. And, and you know, look at Kevin McNally. He I think just... there are exceptions to, the, to that rule. I think, generally speaking, you're right, and it probably does come with age. And, oh, it certainly comes with experience. Yes. I think, I think there are outliers. I think Matt Smith has enormous gravitas. I would but agree with you. few and far between. Kevin, Kevin McNally commands the screen in this. Well, yeah, it's not just that he commands the screen. He does it so deftly deftly and effortlessly and that's the mm. thing that's that's what gravitas the is part fits him like a glove yeah is having the calmness and the confidence in your performance and in yourself to just deftly present this as though it's no effort whatsoever now you contrast that with Jodie Whittaker's performance which is literally off the scale in in its manicness and it's all over the shop and it, and 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 she just can't stop it's 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 rapid fire it's just she's just got to, again we've talked about throwing everything at the wall again Jodie Whittaker throws everything at the wall in about 100 miles an hour and then a bit more in the hope that something of it works whereas Kevin McNally he just sits there and he does the role and he commands attention so beautifully. And that, to me, this is where, unfortunately, you cast a heavyweight like Kevin McNally. And yet again, unfortunately, it just goes to highlight the difference with Jodie Whittaker and the inadequacy, unfortunately, of her acting. She falls apart in my opinion no, again, I completely agree and I think I'm looking at Annabelle, Annabelle Scully and Kevin McNally in the scenes that they are in together yep. where they're sort of holed up in his laboratory for want of a better word where yep. where, uh, where Jericho and Claire have been conducting experiments to sort of to reach inside her mind to bring out whatever we find out as the episode as the episode goes along yep. uh, McNally and Scully with these characters They've been living with them, presumably, for just a couple of weeks working on this material, and yet you can tell that they know exactly who they are. They are completely invested in these characters. And then you've got Jodie Whittaker, who's been playing this part for three and a half years and hasn't got... She still she just still doesn't seem to have a better handle on it at all, does she? And, and, and the problem is, and, and, and you know, people will hate me for saying this, but there is a certain dynamic at the heart of Doctor Who... That, that just works, and that's why Doctor Who has become the success it's become. And so, you know, I would hate people to take this in the wrong way, but the fact remains, Jodie Whittaker might, and I do only say might, but she might have made a fantastic companion to a kind of Kevin McNally sort of Doctor. The brutal truth is, in my opinion, she simply has not got the acting chops or the gravitas to hold the role of a Doctor. But she has got all of the acumen to be a great companion and you know what Dan 
in a in a in a parallel world, in a turn left world, where we might have had Jodie Whittaker as a companion, we might have loved her. We might have said, "Didn't you just love Jodie Whittaker?" <laughs> I loved doing everything else up until this, up until she took on the role of the Doctor. I thought she was fantastic in in pretty yeah. much everything. Yeah, and I honestly I mean, think we might say, didn't we? Just loved her geeky northernness, and she was funny, and she was quirky, and she was off the wall. Because if we got a doctor that was grounded, like Kevin McNally, for example, he's grounded. A bit of manicness from somebody, some from 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 a, a geeky, a kooky. Jodie Whittaker might have worked really, really well, and that's what frustrates me. And as I say, the thing is, it's fine. You can subvert the dynamic at the heart of Doctor Who if you want to, but the fact is, you are taking a degree of risk. Now, it might come off. Don't get me wrong. Of course, it might come off, and, and, and experimenting is what Doctor Who should be doing. But I also do believe there is a dynamic that has always worked for decades, and and it kind of you needs to pay attention to that dynamic. No, I agree. And in the terms of when we look at Village of the Angels as an episode in itself, which is not without merit. You know, I think we've already yeah. <laughs> given it quite a hard time. This episode, I think, is the strongest of the run so far. Uh, there were a lot of things I liked about War of the Santarans, yeah. uh, but I think this was more distinctive, and the characters, the uh, smaller cast, I think it was a smaller cast, the characters that we are introduced to they make a bigger impression in a way shorter period of time. You know, our, hour of the, uh, our War of the Santarans was on for a full hour. This was just yeah. like 48 minutes, but I think it uses its screen time much, much better. It's more economical with its characters. And I do remember their names and what they did within the, within the boundaries of the story. But as always, in those scenes where the, the tension and the authenticity of the threat, when that starts to build up, which is partly down to Jamie Magnusstone, who I think directs this really, really well, and partly down to what I think Maxine is, is bringing as a co-writer to help build those characters. So we've got all that that's, that's building up. And that sense as well, a rare sense in this era of Doctor Who, of actually feeling that we are in the historical place that we're meant to be. So all of those things are actually beginning to work. The spell is beginning to, to sort of coalesce. And then all of that is immediately hoovered up with the entrance of Jodie Whittaker as the <sighs> Doctor. It's like watching an old... Do you remember the Norman Wisdom films where he joined the fire service or become yes. a milkman or whatever else? <laughs> yes, He'd yes, enter yes. a situation that was like a well-oiled machine and they were, you know, they'd got it down to a fine art. These people were, you know, were professionals who did their job and then he'd sort of blunder in yeah. into stage left Mr. all Grimm's over style, some ladders, get his hat all in a funny direction, speak really, really loudly <laughs> and then spill over somebody's tea on the way out. That is who the 13th Doctor is. But you see, Norman knew he was, play he was playing the fool. Mm. But Jodie Whittaker, and more to the point, Chris Chibnall is still writing it, and Jodie Whittaker is still playing it with an aim to make it this sage-like character. But the things that are coming out of her mouth are yeah. way too preposterous. Uh, and that's what... So when I say that Chris Chibnall doesn't... He cannot write this character, that's what I mean. And because he's, he's completely miscast the character that he's getting to say the things, it's just compounding one problem on top of another, on top of another. And it's it's never more of a shame than when you see it sabotaging an episode which actually I feel could have been good. <laughs> well, well, yes, because the, the truth of it is, had you put, let's say, David Tennant 
or Peter Capaldi in that episode, Anybody. I think it would have Anyone. been. I think it would have been a, a cracking episode. The thing is, I mean, I talked previously about there being a sort of a schizophrenia at the, at the heart of Flux, and and in many ways, I think you're you've hit the nail on the head. There is a schizophrenia at the heart of the Doctor, because are they are they writing this this uh, kooky, funny comedy character, or are they writing somebody who we, we, let's. Let's be honest. We, we, we're now being told endlessly with so that the, the Doctor is so much more than just a Time Lord. Um, <laughs> you know, that's got the, that's got the gravitas. Yeah, that, but from from the kind of the direction we're going with Flux, the idea I'm getting is that they're trying to basically say that the Doctor is almost the cornerstone, the keystone of the entire universe. <laughs> and yet, you know what I mean. And yet she's this this loony loopy character that we're supposed to fall in love with because she's so kooky and funny. And don't we just love her? Well, no, we don't. We haven't fallen in love with her. Um, and the more lovable you try to make her, the less lovable she is, because it, it's just irritating. Um, and I think, I've, I, you know, I've criticised Russell T. Davis writing in the past, but he understood how to write the Doctor in the, in the David Tennant. The 10th the Doctor's character, for example, could very quickly fluctuate between fun geekiness and fun kookiness and loopiness to absolute gravitas, absolute weight, absolute seriousness, literally almost in the space of one line. He, he, they were able to do that. Now, maybe that was partially Russell T. Davies's writing, which, as I say, I have been critical of. And maybe partially it's David Tennant's acting, which again, equally on occasion, I'll be I think that everybody who works. worked on that on that era of the show was on the same page creatively, and so yeah. they were they were working. It was it seemed much more cooperative. Everybody knew exactly which direction they were they were pulling well, in. You, and again, you do see you get flashes of that in this and classic. I don't mean classic series necessarily, but but bread and butter Doctor Who thrills and spills, such as that the whole sequence really where they are. They hold up in the laboratory, yeah. Where the angels are sort of making their attack and breaching. You know, they're they're coming out through Claire's mind, aren't they? Because she's got yeah. an angel in her mind. You know, which it's an idea that doesn't really bear up to any class yeah, examination. But that's honest. something that you know River Song came out with that one. So it is sort of established, and angels start to manifest via whichever way they can, sort of through drawings mm-hmm. or through through being uh, uh, transmitted through uh, an off. Uh, television, old cathode ray tube TV, mm-hmm. and it makes for it just makes for good jumpy scares well, in a in a nicely put together setting with characters that you believe they are who they say they are. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think for me personally, there's one critical, critical failing at the heart of this particular episode, which I think is a shame because I think the best stuff in the whole episode is is basically the base under siege stuff where they are in the basement of, of the house now what i would have done if i if i'd been a brave writer in the way that chris chipman is not a brave writer is in this episode of all episodes i wouldn't have split all the companions up from the doctor and i wouldn't have had the parallel storyline in the other universe no i'd have literally spent 40 minutes what? in that basement i would have done doctor who does uh, night of the living dead in that basement, that's where they would have stayed for exactly. 40, 45 minutes. 
and, and you will be probably barely even have seen a weeping angel because all of the dynamic would have been within those characters locked in the basement and you wouldn't even have seen the weeping angel which would have made it even scarier. So I think it was a, it, it, there was a, an opportunity to be really brave and daring and write a really, really original episode of Doctor Who. And again, he kind of bottled it because he would got to see the, the, the Yaz being strong and policewoman-like, and we got to see... Uh, it's one thing to have a, have a B story, but we've got an A story, a B story, story a C story, and, and a D story as well. So every yeah. time it cuts from all of that into whatever Belle's doing with that slave guy and the, with the passenger yeah. and Azure, which is all well, fine. It probably would have been okay in another episode, but as regards, this is just a distraction. Kills the momentum. Yeah, for, that's the yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. Kills it just, the momentum, stone dead every time. Because just we, as you're beginning to get up some degree of excitement, yeah. oh, we're off somewhere else, and I don't even know where we are, and I don't care. And that to me has been a fundamental problem with the whole of Flux. It's too many storylines. I am sick to the back teeth, to be honest, Dan, of seeing this endless change of scenery. And they, you know, they're even having to put subtitles there to tell you where and when we are yeah. now because otherwise and, you wouldn't have the faintest idea what was going on who we're with now why and, and i don't care kind of i don't care where we are now i was engaged i was i was getting invested in what you were telling me a minute ago in the basement i don't want to be transported to a parallel universe with something else happening that it may be linked but i don't know how i don't care and it was a fundamental failing with episode one of flux because everybody has said pretty much there was too much going on there were too many storylines being thrown at it and okay you can justify by saying don't worry it'll all be tied up in the end well look you can do that but it doesn't make an engaging episode when it's jumping all over the shot and you don't get the chance to get invested in the momentum of a good narrative. So you you tread that path. I with, completely with, agree. With and even even when there are there are characters on the board who you can you can sort of latch onto and remember their names. The, the the couple who were looking for the little girl Peggy as a prime example, Gerald and yeah. Jean. They sort of bumble around a little bit, and they're not particularly well-developed characters, but they're nicely played, and they're recognisable kind of archetypes that we we, yeah, we get it. We, we spend five minutes with them, and we get it. They're sort of stock characters. It's fine. And the same with with the uh, the older woman, Mrs. Haywood, who is the the grown-up Peggy, isn't she? And that's quite nice and just Moffat enough that I think Chris Chibnall could have got away with this. But he overburdens the rest of it with just yes. like say extraneous stuff that we don't need to know, or we or we could have just left aside for a week. It well, wouldn't have been the end of the world. Exactly. If it doesn't if it doesn't really add anything to the story you're telling, cut it out. You know that that the art of a good scriptwriter is knowing when to cut stuff out because it doesn't move your. John Carpenter, my favourite director of all time, always talks about this. If it, if it's not adding to your story, cut it out. If it's going to add to your story later on, you bring it in later on, not now. Um, and and there, there is a real truth in that. And so the so the two characters, the little old man and the little old lady, yeah, beautiful characters. That should have been a pre-title sequence, a pre uh, the, the pre-title teaser. Back again, looking at classic Who. It's the kind of thing that Robert Holmes maybe would have thrown in as the little teaser. Absolutely. To yeah. set the scene. Yeah, great, set the scene and then move on and don't burden your story with a, with a, with a, with a, with another narrative thread that isn't actually going anywhere and doesn't contribute to your story in any way. It's basically it's, it's funny you mentioned John Carpenter because I was thinking about the scenes where the angels are 
like say it's the base under siege, so the place yeah. is surrounded by angels. Absolutely. And uh, and Jericho, he, he, he's told not to even open the door. Yeah. Because obviously that's when that's when the angels. If you look at them and and the whole language, we know the language and the law surrounding the angels, but he doesn't. It's all completely new to him. So it's perfectly reasonable that he would open the door and have a look. And then, yeah. Uh, yeah, so you do sort of willing him through because you like the character. You know who he is already and you care about him. Yeah. You've got all those scenes where the angels are sort of surrounding his house here. And uh, when I saw that, and you've, you've just mentioned John Carpenter, I immediately thought of the film The Correct. Fox. Correct. Spot on. From, from 1980. Yeah. And again, this is Doctor Who borrowing i don't think that's an accident great. at all no problem at all with that to be totally clear i have no problem so much classic who borrows from either literature or film text it doesn't yeah. matter totally you can cool. borrow all you like all you like you just got to do it well then but that's that's not where it stopped is it because <laughs> and i've noticed as well in flux there's been a lot of sort of dry ice and neon lights and things like 80s yeah. rock video kind of iconography which was probably due to come round again i'm cool with that i'm an 80s kid it no all problem. works for me no problem you can no. always use a bit of dry ice and it makes something look good so all yeah. credit no yeah, so but for all that you've got you've got that that influence there from from john carpenter i also feel that there's a lot of influence in this too from many other things including Stranger Things, the Netflix show that I think yes. started around 2016. There was a lot yep. of that aesthetic about it with little girls going missing yep. and, and tendrils and the the idea that, because in that series they've got something they call the upside down, haven't they, which is sort yes. of the, literally the upside down world, a mirror, a mirror image of our own world that exists underneath ours, but yes. in a sort of state of... of um, De state of decay or disarray yes. or chaos I think more chaos yeah. and that's also something I feel that, that they're trying to sell us on here too that it's sort of a breakdown between dimensions that's caused uh, by actually I'm not entirely sure what it's caused by by the angels, by the flux or whatever it is, I don't suppose it really matters because it does, I think because Jamie Magnus Stone kind of directs it all quite well and the visual effects this is one of the episodes of Flux where I think the effects are good and the production values yeah. are good across yeah. the board. We've had several episodes already where there's been some of the worst special effects I've ever seen and some of the nicest production design I've ever seen. I think things come together a lot, lot more in this. It, make, it, it at least all feels like it's the same show. Yes. So yeah, I feel that it's got one foot in John Carpenter's stuff from, from uh, 1980 and another in Stranger Things. But also, I was thinking about other nerdy, culty dramas of the past and the present. And I know you have too, so let's just do a quick a quick name check of uh, Sapphire and Steel. Yeah. I think that's definitely in, in the mix too. I mean, what, what do you think about this? What, what are the similarities here between, between Village of the Angels and Sapphire and Steel? I, I mean, I think the interesting thing is, yeah, in many ways this could have been a Sapphire and Steel story because, but again, this is where... <laughs> If it had been a Sapphire and Steel story, it would have been, it taken place entirely in the basement. And that's yeah. what I'm talking about. It's the bravery. Sapphire and Steel, literally, and if there's anybody out there that has not yet seen Sapphire and Steel, seriously, 
go and take a look. It's brilliant television. And you would have an entire six-episode story running about three hours and set entirely in the basement. And that's what they would have done. Um, and it would have been brilliant because it's all about the interaction of the characters. And that, of course, is where the crossover comes then with Village of the Angels because, as you say, Dan, a lot of this is, is sort of character-based. And also a lot of it is, is kind of weird in inverted commas for, for once of the better. The smaller better. it gets, the stronger it is. It's surreal, yeah. It's it, it, A lot of Sapphire and Steel is very, very surreal um, and almost takes place in its sort of own, own sort of micro universe and, and so Village of the Angels is the same, it's using surreal imagery um, that let, let's be fair to a, to a large extent really has only come from the angels themselves created by Stephen Moffat so Chibnall is only really borrowing, he's not creating any new yeah, he's riding Moffat's coattails yeah absolutely, absolutely. I, I'm thinking of in particular with, with Sapphire and Steel there's a scene, I won't spoil it for people who've never seen it, but there's a very famous scene, several several special effects scenes in that, that were just CSO back in the day. Terrible, they'd, be, terrible. they'd be at a petrol station yeah. or on a rooftop or sometimes just staring out of a window yeah. and all around them would be empty space with just a few stars. And yeah. we get that in uh, Village of the Angels, don't we, where the village gets, gets cut off. We see that it's sort of floating in space. And that's a, that is a very sapphire still image too, isn't it? It's very, very sapphire still. And of course, yeah, back in the day, it would have been done dreadfully with CSO, bless them, because that's the one thing you can't say about sapphire and steel is that the effects are good because they're not, they're atrocious, but it doesn't matter because the stories are so good. But to be anything, if anything, that, that then highlights to me part of the problem again with modern Doctor Who in that if anything those vistas as you're looking out into space in Village of the Angels are just actually too good they're too detailed they're not chilling enough they they, they it's a little bit of overkill for me I, I, if anything I just want to see blackness out there that's what I would have gone I'd gone for nothingness I, I think, yeah I, I, I suppose I agree I mean I I did think the effects I, I thought it was nice it's very nice it's beautiful it's the kind of thing you'd put on a wall but and does that's it... maybe why it doesn't build the threat, because you, you're it right, it's too pretty. Too pretty. It is too pretty, I think. Whilst we're comparing Village of the Angels to uh, better shows, I also want to mention the Stone Tape, the yes, 1972 brilliant. Nigel Neal thing. I think a, there was a lot of that in this too, the, the two central yeah. uh, characters, Jericho and Claire, are very similar to Jane Asher's character and the Absolutely. Professor in this and you've even got sort of maidens floating in midair sometimes they've even got their hands over their eyes too in the stone tape and they're also in the basement of an old house in that aren't they i can't yeah. recommend that enough if people haven't seen it stone tape is brilliant i can still remember seeing this when it went out i, I was very young really? i think i would have been back i think it was 1972 that it was screened Surprised and i slept again before. It, 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 and, and I can remember it It was because it terrified me so much. Um, so, again, yeah, if anybody hasn't seen the Stone Tape, it's highly recommended by Nigel Neal, um, of course, Equatomass fame. The only thing you have to be careful is everybody shouts very loudly throughout it as though they're on stage. But that was what happened in 1972. But you're right, Dan, there's, there's a lot of similarities. Um, and, and let's be clear, this stuff works. And, and so I... Yeah. To be clear, I'm not criticising... It's reassuring to see borrowing. these things yeah. being borrowed from, in fact, because it makes you think, oh, he does know how this series works after all. What you know, Dan, that's part of the fun of classic Who is actually seeing the references. There's nothing wrong at all with referencing. I have a problem with basically just ripping off. That, that's a different thing. Well, the Curse of Fenric off. was full of them too. That was full of, of, of visual markers of the fog and all those kinds Correct. of things back in 1989, so it's fine. 
And you can Nothing find examples that. stretching right the way back through yeah. the Troughton era, maybe even the Hartnell era. I don't know. And it, and it does, and it does work. The stone, the the, the, the this comparison with the stone tape is totally fair, and and it works. There's nothing wrong, as I say, that that, that, that that's absolutely fine. And what and what what they've borrowed of the stone tape works. It's nice. It's a it's a good dynamic. Let, the thing is, those kind of the the the, the the st- the original story of the stone tape and any of that stuff, these are all classic, classic stories. Um, classic in the in the sense of they've been around for literally millennia. This kind of yeah. thing, people have been telling ghost stories for millennia um, of this ilk, um, and so there's nothing wrong with that. We like it. There's something very comforting and reassuring. And I think if anything, that's one of the things that worked about Village of the Angels, which is why I was then so frustrated when I got snatched out and sent off to a spaceship that I didn't actually care about. We're <laughs> um, talking about being snatched out. Are, are you a fan of the of the Weeping Angels themselves, Simon? Because from 2007 to now, because Blink is seen as a, a seminal story now, isn't it? And it's something that even non-Doctor Who fans they latch onto that. Don't blink, people. Of the various creations, you know, Doctor Who's been back for a long time, but of the various monsters that have been trotted out on screen in, in however many episodes of New Doctor Who now, not that many of them have taken a serious hold on the on the viewing public in the way that the Daleks and the Cybermen have. There's probably been two or three, but the Angels are the number one, aren't they? Are you are you a fan, and what do you think their core appeal is? Do you know, it's funny, I absolutely adore Blink. I still hold Blink up as one of the best, and I'm not a fan of Moffat's writing, but I hold Blink up as an example it's of super. undoubtedly for me one of the very, very, very best episodes of New Who. I mean, I would put it in the top five. I might even put it in the top two or three episodes of New Who since 2005. Uh, Utterly, utterly stunning. But, and here's the big but for me, for me personally, the Weeping Angels only work in that story and they should never have come back. To me, they were absolutely, they were so perfect. I'm I'm very sympathetic to that point of view. As much as I enjoy the time of the Angels, I am very sympathetic. I, 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 I honestly don't feel personally that there's ever been a good Weeping Angels story written since. Um, I don't think they've ever quite captured the appeal of the Weeping Angels again. I think, for me, they were such... It, the Weeping Angels were literally a device. They weren't a monster in the way, the classic way of, a, of, a, of the Cybermen or the Daleks or whatever. They were a storytelling device. Moffat had in his mind the story that he wanted to tell. And he literally had to create the alien he needed to tell that story. And so as a result, for me, they only work within that story. And the problem, the reason I say that is because once you lift them out of that story, they begin to fall apart for me. The logic of them falls apart. What does this even mean? Don't blink. You know, again, you can get away with it in 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 in, in the original episode because it's it's so it's almost throwaway. The episode carries you along. It's incidental almost. The episode just carries you along in its momentum that you don't even notice that the logic of don't blink doesn't actually work. And to me, certainly in Village of the Angels, the logic does fall apart because the, the, the constant cry of don't blink doesn't work. Because are we saying, okay, if there's two or three of you, which there are often in the Village of the Angels, there are often two or three of you, presumably, as, well, as long as you're not all blinking at exactly the same time, you're going to be okay because... <laughs> Because the monster is still observed. So all you've got to do is say, right, you blink now. Right, you blink. So, so as long as you don't all blink together, and of course that's never going to happen, that you're all going to blink together, you're cool, it's fine. 
And so as a result, the logic for me of how the angels actually work falls apart. Well, also and, as well, Simon. Come out. Also as well, because they can't actually move, can't speak, can't really interact, there's only so much you can do with them. You've all the only move you've really got is the the fact the the jump cut. Yes. The, that's literally the quick it. jolt. That is all you've got. And realistically, they kind of blew that in the Halloween apocalypse. That was one of the probably the standout scene in that episode. I would agree. Was oh, I would agree. Claire got snatched away by the weeping angel. And I feel that effectively what we are given in Village of the Angels, and I didn't I found this episode again. I did find this diverting, almost entertaining, and there are certain things to recommend it on the strength yeah. of. That agree. being said, all that really happened was that we we got introduced to some characters that, for a change, we could we could latch onto. Mm -hmm. But we got uh, jump scene after jump scene after jump scene, whilst various characters paced around from place to place, yeah. asking one another questions. Until, 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 until the cliff, until the cliffhanger, which was somebody asking a question, and again, kind of getting, kind of getting zapped. So, I do feel that this could be the story, in hindsight, the last Weeping Angel story that it's probably worth anybody I, ever telling. I can't see anybody going back to this well now. I feel that Chris Chibnall has kind of spoiled them a little. I I was partly expecting him him to offer us a Davros-like figure for the Weeping something Angels. More, a new dimension. A progenitor or, or something like that. And I think that he... I, I suppose he did innovate in, in, uh, in the sense that the Angel was seen to have established a connection with the character of Claire living inside her mind. But where I feel that he probably took it a little too far now is he's given voice to an angel through Claire. So now, you know, I think with the angels before, they seem to be universal forces of nature. They yeah. didn't have a will. They had no goals. They weren't in anybody's employ. They didn't discriminate. Yeah. But now they do kind of all of those things they're almost like in the sense that the, the jadoon are a police force for hire yes the the, uh, the weeping angels in this they can seemingly be uh be turned into a uh, a slave force that can transport people kind of. wherever you need them to yeah, be they, yeah, yeah, to yeah, yeah yeah they're kind of international couriers aren't they that's what it, well universal <laughs> couriers that's what they're kind of UPS. Couriers. <laughs> i mean what you're talking about really there is that i, uh, this is, I, I would agree with that that, that that i think what you're saying really is that chibnall has given them a rationale he's he's kind of explained kind of how in inverted commas the weeping angels work yeah, and, and, and that, he's explained something that no but none of us ever wanted to explain it didn't want Chris. to know didn't want to know you didn't want to look behind the curtain again as to say this is why to me blink works so well because we don't look behind the curtain we don't understand the rationale behind these things what the hell are they they're just they're just creepy angels that you see in graveyards and and because we don't know how they work it makes them so much scarier you explain how they work and you give them more the more you give them and and of course terry nation discovered this himself with daleks the more you give them the more rationale you give them actually the weaker they become um and i think the weeping angels are the classic example of this and this is the story that i would agree just there's a belief though I mean, that you can i mean not many people have done it but the idea there is an idea that you can reason 
with a Dalek. You could, you could appeal to a Dalek somehow. It may spare your life if it needs you. Yeah. You In previous appearances, the angels didn't need anybody or anything. No. They just are. Whereas yes. in this, you get the feeling that they do need people. They, they want to speak to the Doctor. They need Claire or someone like her. And we also see them acting... I seemingly in vengeance when they we see them kill somebody on screen for the very first time they kill the old man mm. Gerald you know they re- reduced to reduced to dust and, uh, and that's another thing that's brushed off as well in typical sort of Chibnall era fashion you know he's an old old grumpy white guy therefore he when he wasn't very nice so who cares if he's dead yeah <laughs> nobody more that was a really strange scene but again it was it was done the special effects were brilliant but it's just when you sit back and you think about it you think oh I I can't really see now. What's the point in telling well, another weeping angel? Well, well, also, again, I just I, maybe it's me and I've missed something. But again, I don't understand quite what the angels do. I thought they sent you back to a point in time. Yeah. Now I discover yeah. no, potentially they crumble you to dust, or they. I, we're now also told, or maybe they invade your body um, and take you. Over. It, it's just like, sorry, what? What do they do now? What are they for? I don't get it anymore. This I don't is why Stephen Moffat hardly ever used them himself, because Chibnall has gone back to them because he needed as many familiar oh, things yeah. in this saga as possible. He was determined yes. to have the Weeping Angels, and I fear that long term he's kind of he's picked them up, played with them, and broken them. I would agree. I would agree. I think they're certainly at the end of their useful life now, unfortunately. And for me personally, again, if 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 Chibnall was was a highly talented writer, he would have come up with a new a new alien, a new monster. Because let's be honest, you you've you've just said Dan quite correctly that this is kind of this story is reminiscent of not just the thing. Uh, uh, sorry, uh, John Carpenter's The Fog, but also yes, John Carpenter's The Thing, and even the original The Thing. Uh, it's a base under siege. It's 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 um, representative of, of numerous uh, Troughton episodes, all of which came up with with well, sometimes they came up with new monsters, sometimes they go back to Cybermen. But the point being. That come on, Chris Chibnall, come up with something new of your own. You've come up with pre- precious well, little. Even if there is very little to... to show from this era. That's true. And even if he didn't want to come come up with anything of his own, why use the Weeping Angels when actually, if he wanted a a, a group of characters that were kind of for hire and that did have they did have a sort of spirit of vengeance feel about them. And, and were prone to going on crusades and, and establish mental links. What about the silence? They would have been a better fit for what Chris Chibnall needed these characters to do. So why didn't he use the silence instead? It's because I they're s- not so. It's because correct. they're not so recognisable. Absolutely, spot on. Because the uh, as we're going to come to, we're going to talk about ratings in a, in a little while, and he could almost have. And this is, you know, Russell T. Davis was absolutely right when he did this, but all the way back in series one, when he placed the Dalek episode bang in the middle of, of that season back in 2005, it gives your series a lift. Almost, it gives it a lift. It gives it that sort of second premiere yeah. episode that yeah. you know people are going to turn up if yeah. it's got your favourite monster in. And I, I think that it was a cynical move on Chibnall's part and he didn't actually look and to see that there would have been other alien races in Doctor Who history, or oh, God forbid, as you say, that he creates something himself that could have done the job better and it wouldn't have, have uh, ruined the Weeping Angels. 
It's it's only it's you only maybe this, this may this may seem like nitpicking to some, but it's only when you sit back and you reflect on what you've seen, why it made you feel or not feel a certain way, that you, you realise oh that's why this is why that didn't work, that's why that left me cold, or why do I now feel like some of the charm, some of the yes. appeal, some of the uniqueness has been drained away of something that I before that I used to think about. And remember, with with almost bated breath, and I think we do get that with the angels. Yeah, I think I think we do with the, with this episode in particular. I, I would I would personally hold up War of the Santarans as as probably arguably the best episode of Flux so far. Um, and, and but I mean that let's be clear, we've set the bar very very low. So War of the Santarans is not something I'm ever going to be watching again anytime soon. But the the problem for me with Village of the Angels is. Yeah, as you say, I, I was left with a feeling that I should be enjoying this more than I actually am. I kind of felt, in a way, all the parts were kind of there. Because it almost felt like enjoying. Doctor Who. Yeah, I agree with you. And and the location is very Doctor Who, you know, the village, and it's all set at night. You, As you say, there's lots of dry eyes. There's great characters within there in a classic kind of Doctor Who sort of way. All the ingredients were potentially all there, but I was still left thinking, meh, so what? Uh, okay, <laughs> it was pro- it was probably... A- it's one of those episodes that people say to me, you know, Kai, you must have enjoyed that. And I'm thinking, did I? Did I enjoy Maybe I did. I don't know. Perhaps I did. I'm not certain. So I didn't come away from it thinking, wow, that was brilliant. And neither did I come away thinking that was diabolical i'm just kind of a bit somewhere in the middle it just sort of left me a bit yeah it was okay really well i don't want to think of a doctor episode okay do you, you know what i mean captivated thrilled you want yeah. to be left on the edge of your seat yeah. until until the next one seven days yeah. later which brings us nicely to the cliffhanger again i thought this was a really really strong cliffhanger one that i did see coming a couple of years ago in fact it was when jody whitaker was cast I was speaking to uh, starry-eyed girl Sarah Graham about this, and I said, now they've cast a woman as the Doctor, you can bet at some point she will be transmogrified into a weeping angel because visually that works, whereas it, it would yeah. never work with a man. Yeah. We get that. We, we see the Doctor get imprisoned by the angels, get taken by the angels, taken wherever, for whatever, encased in, uh, in stone and adopt the stance with her hands over her eyes in the in the uh, time-honoured fashion and it is it's um an it's arresting a memorable image it's arresting that's right to the point where although we know by now partly the age that we are and the fact we've seen so many of these things resolved but even in terms of flux i think i had an inkling that this was going to be resolved fairly quickly and in a throwaway fashion. But it, it definitely left people I think it left people wanting wanting more, wanting to wanting to see more. It stimulated a lot of unofficial fan art, for example. And that image that you, as you so correctly describe as, as arresting, it's the kind that does stay with you. And it's it's something I expect to see on t shirts and sweatshirts and maybe yeah. even to be a, a collectible figure in time. I I don't know. I think that's could be out for anything concerning this era but it, it worked really really well and yeah, I, agree. I suppose it's a miracle that it's taken three and a half years 
to deliver it and that it's and it's a great pity that it's had to take a story that has pretty much ruined the weeping angels to do so but i'd say that when they're assembling a greatest hits medley package video of moments from uh, from the chibnall era that that is probably the the best of that we've seen yet as a purely visual thing well i would agree there well not only as a purely visual thing as a, as a as a um... Uh, a psychological thing as well from the point of view you know we can all we can all kind of relate to that um of being turned into a, a weeping angel it's a scary image and it's the okay, kind of right. image that to a child um quite correctly would would unnerve them in the best possible sense in the way that things used to unnerve us as kids when we were watching classic who it's the kind of thing uh that that, that children i hope when they're our age, we'll talk about it in the same way that we might talk about Lynx taking off his helmet at the end of, of yeah. the Time Warrior, for example. Uh, you know, or seeing Leela dragged off down a down a, a, a sewer in Victorian London. It's those images that stick with you. Um, and even quite in the dialogue, you are recalled to the division. Neither of us are fans of all that mumbo jumbo, and certainly not of this retconned origin. No, nope. but I so, you know, as we say, less is more. They didn't say a great deal, but you are recalled to the division. Again, that's promising. It's it's evocative. Uh, I, I'm, I'm so bored by the division. Yeah, I, know, I, don't, I, know. I don't know what it is. I don't care what it is. It, no, uh, I don't uh, either. Unfortunately, the problem is, again, it's one of those classic things that really has been a problem to me of the entire run of Flux, which is this idea that we can just drop this thing in and we put a sort of a loud stab of music on and some, and some meaningful glances as though we're supposed to be horrified, impressed, amazed, shocked well, on the Simon, edge of I our think, seats. I think the problem is that he waited the best, well, he waited two seasons to, you know, try to be objective about it. The fact that we hate both hate the retcon of the origin is neither here nor there. Looking at it in story terms, he waited two full seasons to bring in the division and all of that... And it's only been mentioned, we've only had a handful of episodes between the time as children and this, during which time the division have been mentioned twice. We've seen a couple of characters and that's it. And we're, we're expected to, to feel completely invested and that that yeah. is a sensational ending as if Correct. it's something that's actually been building for three or four years on screen. Correct. He treats it as if it's got the same weight as finding out who River Song was, for example, and all those Correct. things that we've been waiting, at, waiting on for a few years. Or, or seeing the Doctor and Rose reunited at, in at Bad Wolf Bay. Yeah, but it's got none of those things because they're just it's just things that he mentioned once, eighteen months ago. We still don't really can't pin it down. We don't know what any of it means. It's, it's nebulous. It, that that's the problem. It's an abstract concept. The division. What is that? Nobody knows. Nobody really cares. You you can't. There's nothing concrete about it. It is literally an abstract concept. And I would that argue that's the problem with Chris. Not only Chris, uh, Chris Chibnall's writing, but Chris Chibnall's own personal ideology as well. It's full of abstract concept, concepts that a great many of the people out there watching do not recognise well, or even don't don't believe in, don't subscribe to. And he just keeps walking this same old walk yeah. and talking this same old talk and. Maybe that's why his era has felt more spent and more tired out faster than any Maybe. that I can think of before. Maybe. 
Because, because I mean, in many ways, I suppose another comparison could be with something like the Time War that gets mentioned endlessly through the Russell yeah. T Davies years. But the difference is there. Firstly, it's done in a very throwaway fashion, in that it will just get dropped in every so often, and then it's there for you to pick up if you want to or not. Um, whereas the division is mentioned, and as I say, we're supposed to be a impressed, b shocked, c horrified. You know, take your pick. <laughs> um, and also. You call something the time war, and I'm immediately, okay, that intrigues me. What, what is this war in time? But the division, and the same as the flux, I can't get a handle on that. It doesn't, it doesn't evoke any, the time war evokes some, it gets my imagination going. As a fan, I, I can see how, for example... Well, kids can join the dots in that, a war through yeah. time, just like a Correct. war through star, Star Wars. It's... Yeah, and you can see, and you can see how fans would pick up on that and think, "I want to go away and write the, some fan fiction about what the time war was." But the flux, the division, it, it, it doesn't inspire to me in any way. And as I say, I could cope with that if it wasn't done in such a way that is is telling me that I must be impressed by this. It's it's a, it's a degree of arrogance, in all honesty, on Chibnall's part, that he genuinely thinks but that by dropping in this bombshell that the Doctor is being taken back to the Division, that a whole, a whole nation of, of, of casual viewers is going to go, oh my God, I can't... I Not can't the Division! Not the Division! <laughs> is that the one with the pointy hat again? <laughs> and it's arrogance. And the really lightweight-looking laser cannons? <laughs> It's arrogance. It's literally arrogance. Whereas Russell T. Davis can see immediately how a nation, when presented, for example, with Christopher Eccleston's doctor facing up against a lone Dalek locked in a cell, that's going to make people say, oh, my God, this is bad. It, it, it gets people's attention. Yeah. You know, ups, the, ups the stakes It's a misunderstanding. It's a misunderstanding of what... And, that, and so the... the what I would boil down with all of that with Flux and uh, to, to widen it out for a moment from Village of the Angels to the whole Flux thing is this undoubtedly is fan fiction. The whole Flux story arc, for want of a less horrible word, is fan fiction. Within that War of the Santaran sits as a half, half decent piece of regular uh, mainstream television, as does Village of the Angels. But the Flux aspect of it and the Flux aspect of the whole four episodes we've seen so far is fan fiction it's as simple as that it's the kind of thing that we were all writing in fanzines back in the late 80s early 90s yeah. and what if what if Anud turned up correct and what if Santarans were fighting one another what exactly. if this was going yeah, yeah you can you can imagine yeah I can imagine somebody sitting and, and banging all that out what if there was this sort of rambling old house in the doctor's head and yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it, and so that and so that to me is why this kind of fan fiction will never work in the same way that the timeless children w w was fan fiction. Um, you know, you you it's it's a fundamental misunderstanding. Even even if we were to take the very worst offences of let's say the, the John Nathan Turner era, and let's say take something like Attack of the Cybermen, which is which is pretty much ninety minutes of continuity yeah, references yeah. for the viewing public. They would have been happy because there were some Cybermen kicking ass, basically, and some spaceships and some laser guns. Do you know what I mean? So they'd have still I been happy. I completely but agree. We... The, the momentum of that 
and the the performances carried it through. Yeah, you, you and yet you, you yeah you're right. There is a lot of continuity in that story, and it never Too bothered much. me when I was when I was ten or eleven. No, you Doesn't make quite sense. Right. You can't understand the content. Even as a fan, you can't understand the continuity in Attack of the Sidemen, but it doesn't matter because the momentum of it carries you through and the, and, and the reviewer quality of it carries it through. Whereas this, it's fan fiction. It's the kind of thing that I know I would have read in a fanzine back in the day. And I just thought, oh, God. And I'm sure in time there'll be an anthology and maybe even a big finished box set about the division. <laughs> but oh. uh, for now, it's time we divided our time with talk of that whole multiverse full of other podcasts that stretch across the fandom podcast network with us. So here is uh, Santa Barbara's very own Rassilon. <laughs> That's our Kevin. Just for a couple of minutes, he's going to fill you in and point you in the right direction of the right wormhole, where you can get even more cult conversations into your life. Check it out. Thank you for listening. We hope you're enjoying this podcast. We'd like to continue to feed your ears by inviting you to listen to these other great shows on the Fandom Podcast Network. It starts with our flagship show, Culture Clash, discussing the latest in entertainment pop culture. Blood of Kings, Immortals Take Notice, our show covering the entire Highlander universe. Couch Potato Theaters, where we celebrate our favorite movies. Time Warp, the Fandom Flashback Podcast, discussing a year in movies and our favorite retro movie, and TV pop culture topics. Good evening, discussing all things Alfred Hitchcock. Union Federation, our Star Trek and Orville show. Hair Metal, the 80s and early 90s rock metal podcast. Type 40, our show covering the time-traveling Doctor Who universe with host Dan Hadley. Lethal Mullet, an 80s and 90s action film podcast with host Adam P. O'Brien. Also check out the Lethal Mullet Network for more great podcasts. What a Piece of Junk, a Star Wars podcast with hosts Scott, Derek, and Nathan. Making Treks, a Star Trek podcast, a deep dive into the final frontier with hosts Mark Newbold and Adam P. O'Brien. And check out our newest shows, The Fandom Show, our monthly fandom podcast network live YouTube exclusive show about the month's hottest topics in fandom, and the FPN True Believers MCU podcast discussing the Marvel Cinematic Universe and the related Marvel television and streaming MCU universe, including the connections to the original Marvel comics. You can find the Fandom Podcast Network on several platforms. Please subscribe to the Fandom Podcast Network YouTube channel to receive notifications of new podcast episodes and live events. You can enjoy all of the Fandom Podcast Network audio podcasts on our master feed at fpnet.podbean.com. Fandom Podcast Network is on all major podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and iTunes. You can find the Fandom Podcast Network on Facebook. You can email us at fandompodcastnetwork at gmail.com. You can also find the Fandom Podcast Network on Instagram at Fandom Podcast Network and on Twitter at FanPod Network. Thank you for listening, and remember, respect others and enjoy your fandom. Yes, we've teased and tantalized you there, as always, and we can even clothe you too. There's merch to match all of those shows, including Type 40. If you head over to uh, tpublic.com, search for the Fandom Podcast Network there, and you'll find a store full of all the team colors for all of the podcasts on everything to, from uh, T-shirts to phone cases, mugs and tapestries and all manner of other things, so many that I can barely remember. Seeing is believing. Treat yourself. 
treat your other selves and it all goes to support the fandom podcast network into the bargain at least uh, something simon still makes sense in the doctor who universe eh? yeah so simon's been recalled back to us he's still here and it's just as well because i think this segment tends to be a little more fun doesn't it does it final segment yeah unless your names <laughs> unless your name's chris chibnall in which case mm, not so much maybe not so much yeah it's the regular regular look at the doctor who ratings for series 13 as the episodes have been premiering we've had one eye as is customary in doctor who fandom on the ratings how is it being received how many people are watching it what are they saying and how are they registering their approval or not of every chunk of new doctor who and up to now it's not going great is it we have we've had an all-time series low on the aai figure just last time on once upon time that was hardly a surprise Mm-mm. obviously we were talking a few minutes ago about the uh, the rationale behind giving your season that bit of a kick kick in the middle <laughs> kicking the unmentionables by bringing in a familiar monster halfway through this is straight out of out of russell t davis's playbook bringing in the angels so did that work for village of the angels we're going to find out and we see that yeah for episode four we see that uh oh no 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 they did they went they went down they went yeah. down again yeah, and I'm not, I have to be honest, I'm not remotely surprised by this. In fact, to be honest, the only thing that surprises me is that they didn't go down more than they have actually gone down because episode three was such a stinker. I mean, seriously, I, I, I honestly would bad, hold episode three up as the worst episode of Doctor Who ever in 58 years. Not because, not just because it was bad, but because it was completely and utterly pointless it literally did not deserve to be on the screen because it didn't do anything it didn't go anywhere as you said dan earlier on it had no worth at all so i actually thought more people would abandon episode four and i think the truth of it is the only reason it's not as low as it is is because of the weeping angels somehow thank goodness for chibnall that he put the weeping angels in episode four because it just about i think managed to claw back a few more viewers than it would have done otherwise if it had looked like business as usual for episode four <laughs> i think even less people would have come back what so yeah think? i mean th- this is the science of it isn't it what we tend to find is that any given episode of any TV show, I don't think this is unique to Doctor Who, is the the ratings of how many people turned up to watch it on the night is more of a reflection of how they felt about the one that directly preceded it. So with yeah. the episode three, Once Upon Time, that, that polled at, uh, polled, sorry, that registered an overnight figure of uh, 3.76 million, but it was down for this at 3.45 million that's it's not a massive drop it's not its biggest drop so far this season but it's still a big chunk of people however that all-time low audience appreciation index figure of 75 from once upon time that has lifted to a more almost respectable 79 that's the Mm -hmm. highest of the season so far again not that surprising i mean it's the War of the Santarans, that only got 77. I sort of expected that would get more. But, you know, fair enough. It's the Weeping Angels effect, I think. 
Yeah, I think it is the Weeping Angels effect, undoubtedly. And, and But it's also the effect that, as you said, it's, it's more of a... Uh, I, I honestly can't bring myself to put the word classic in a sentence <laughs> in relation to a Chris Chibnall episode. <laughs> but it is throat, more, it? it's, more in, it's more in line with a, a classic episode of Doctor Who. It's, it's, it's towing the line more about what the general public expect Doctor Who to be about. Um, and so I can't help thinking that... Ultimately, now we are four episodes in, and I, I felt this when it was first announced, and I, I really do feel this is the case. Flux was a complete misjudgment on Chibnall's part. I don't know what he was thinking of. These episodes would have been, the War of the Sontarans episode, the Village of the Angels, would have been so much better as simple standalone episodes. Scrap the flux completely, just tell, just tell good stories. And we, as a result of that, we would have literally have skipped entirely episodes one and three. And God forbid... Chibnall would actually have written two more decent standalone episodes. Or and if you remember, Simon, and if you remember on this very episode with that, that cliffhanger we've just been speaking about with the Doctor encased in stone, because the, he's got so many plates spinning on this thing, he had to interrupt that, the drama of that cliffhanger. Yeah. He, he could have left the audience with that image for a full week, but, he, but because there were so many other things in play... He couldn't. So there's a no. mid-credit sequence for the very first time with with Vinda on an yeah. alien world. You know, bless him, Jacob Anderson. Again, the disclaimer seems like a nice guy. Certainly a great actor, but that mid-credit scene that was weird. Why was it there? That was really, really weird. Well, again, the problem with this is it, 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 it's it's like Doctor Who has got ideas about his station, or or at least Chibnall has got ideas about his station, because again, he he thinks. I th well, he's either completely ignorant to, to to what people think of his of his Doctor Who, or he genuinely thinks that people are more engaged and more impressed than they actually are. I think are. he's been in a bubble for the last three years I, I and has no idea. I don't know what it is because because again, this this uh, to be perfectly honest, and I am going to take my hat off this. It was a really really clever idea, really clever idea, never been done before. Really clever, took me by surprise. Wasn't expecting it. Nicely done. But the problem is. The only reason you can justify doing that is if you are going to cut your your title, your credit sequence, to a really fantastic, groundbreaking, jaw-dropping scene that makes the audience go, "Oh my God!" Just when I thought it wasn't bad enough, suddenly, but it wasn't. It was just, oh, it's just kind of another scene with Vinda. It, it didn't really, it didn't impress. I can't. Do you know what, Dan? I can't even remember what the scene was. He was Vinda getting all misty-eyed. He was getting all misty-eyed over his estranged partner, who we oh. also bear, we also barely know. Or again, Did another you? another character you can you struggle to remember the name of, played Did by an stuff. actress who seem, seems lovely. See, again, it's a fun enough character, but it's hard to hard to really care about. Care. So yeah, care. I just think he's he's got it completely wrong. He thinks. That we have formed an attachment to those characters, spot on, and it's, we haven't. Maybe he has, but he spent months allegedly he, he, writing I, these things. Yeah, I genuinely thinks. I, I genuinely think that he thinks we are more engaged in the Doctor Who that he's telling than we actually are. And look, let's be honest: if we're not engaged as fans, the general public are just sitting there thinking, "What is this weird mid?" Well, if you look at the great British public, they're definitely not engaged with this. The downward trajectory is largely still a thing. 
that's not in flux that's going in one direction and over on bbc america it's it's the same story the figure the figures continue to drop simon mm-hmm. i mean pretty soon they'll be able to host uh, viewing parties for the entire audience for Doctor Who on bbc america by yeah by renting out a small burger joint <laughs> Yeah, you're quite right. I mean, it's literally, it's, it's, well, it is laughable. I mean, you have to laugh at how low the viewers are in America. I mean, look. It's tragic. It is, it is utterly tragic when you, I mean, again, to be clear, Doctor Who, as we know, has always been more of a niche um, cult thing in America than a mainstream thing. But that, but, but, but that is, you, and, and I've seen plenty of Chibnall and Jodie supporters constantly trolling this, this, this rhetoric out that it's seen as a cult in America. Yeah, c- correct. It is seen as a cult in America. But, but to be clear, the Americans fell in love with with um, Matt Smith yeah, um, and Karen Gillan, um, and so suddenly it stopped being as cultish as it was, and now it's fallen straight back into into a hole where it is completely culty, completely um, niche. Yeah, yeah. and we look at a figure like I mean, I'm laughing here, but it's, it's you've got a lot of Yeah, for the fourth episode, it's zero point three one eight million people now on BBC America. From a high of it was, I think it was about one and a half million were watching when Peter Capaldi was playing the part, and and considerably more, obviously for occasions like Day of the Doctor. It's so sad to see the series fall out of favour in the states after you know it was a lot of hard work to get it there, and and uh, Moffat, Smith, Gillen, and and Jenna Coleman to some extent did everything they could to sustain it. Capaldi too, you know they did all those world tours and whatever else. Doctor Who was an international success story yeah. and you know obviously that doesn't necessarily mean that it's any better or any worse as as a uh, as a show no not but at all it's but in this case obviously it has taken a turn for the worst which has only been exacerbated by this drastic mismanagement of the entire brand whereby they have totally lost their audience internationally yeah and, and the problem is, I mean, even if even if we begin to see, as I expect, we will begin to see now episode five and six just begin to inch upwards because we're coming to the end of the series. I would totally expect that. Um, that that is the predicted curve. It always has been. Yeah, yeah, it's not. No. So so what I'm saying is that unfortunately doesn't prove anything. Okay, I would fully expect it to dip upwards now after episode four. That doesn't help you. It's too little, too late. Look, let's be honest. It's not. It's not going to rise. Whatever happens with with flux now, it's not going to rise to a respectable figure. It's not going to suddenly win the public <laughs> back for episode five and six to anything above uh, what four, five, five and a half million kind of thing. Consolidated seven day figure. It's not going to happen. So, how many of these sort of magical? Passengers with their wish masks. How many passengers out of five do you award Village of the Angels, Simon? I only give it two, sadly, because I think the promise was absolutely all there, but it wasn't. Yep. It wasn't executed properly. It, I, I would, as I've said before, I would have set the entire thing in the house. I'd have gone for broke. I'd have gone. For, it, it's not. It's not that difficult for a good scriptwriter to write a 45 minute episode in one location in the house and do it really uh, claustrophobic and 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 uh, contained a contained story That's so i would have done that so 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 to me no it was it, it was still all over the shop what worked worked well but not enough of it worked well for me 
um, and I'm I'm still left kind of thinking I, I actually can't remember much from the episode and it's not that it's only a few days since I watched it and I still can't actually remember much of it so it wasn't desperately memorable so only two <laughs> I'm afraid what are you going to give it are you going to be more generous than me do you think I think this was better than War of the Sontaras in some respects mainly in the fact that it was shorter <laughs> I think <laughs> no I I do I do think it was I do think it was better and yet I can't bring myself to give it a three it's going to be a two and a half from me which is the highest I've given an episode so far this season and I give that under duress it was everything that I've said as we've been speaking I think the fact that the characters were built for purpose that the talent that were cast to play them wasn't wasted. Yeah, that's all. You know, that's novelty too in in the current era of Doctor Who. I think the production design was generally really, really good. The direction was good. So in most respects, I think this delivered. It's just the shape of the story. You know, I'm I'm a big believer in shape. I talk about shape a lot on this show, but it yeah. matters so so much. And yeah. the fact that this is a multi-part story that shouldn't matter. It should still work on a week-to-week basis. I think this delivered delivered us to a place that should be a good springboard for the rest of the season and that's the first time that's happened not only on series 13 but in the entire Chibnall run up to now it's all to play for really he could win us over with a cleaner two part finale that somehow brings (laughs) all of this together whether that's well, possible, I, I I think it'd be possible in the hands of another writer. Yeah, With Chris Chibnall, I've got my doubts. I, I I agree with you, and this is the difficulty. I, I unfortunately I've been um, I've been let down right the way through the Chibnall era. I no longer have any confidence in in him. I no longer have any faith in him as a writer. I know that the that the conclusion to the cliffhanger. Will be it'll be thrown away again. It'll be, with one leap, certainly the Doctor was no longer um, a, a, a weeping angel after all. It'll be very lazy, um, and I don't have confidence in him in, in Chibnall's ability to write a rollicking climax to what he has created. Um, I, I'm coming to the conclusion that we won't even see the flux. I don't even know what the flux ultimately has done. We've been we've had this flux built up so drastically that we're supposed to be so again so in awe of the flux. But it as we've pointed out before, it seems to have been very, very haphazard what the flux actually is, where he's come from. I still think that he's going to connect it back to the ghost monument somehow. I think those rags have to come into it somewhere. Otherwise, all this rainbow patterning, that would be for nothing. It would all... Potentially, it will all be for nothing. This is is the difficulty. (laughs) Um, I think whatever happens, it will be to an extent thrown away. We'll see. We shall see. Next time on the podcast, I'll be joined by Charlotte Shields. She's going to be back along with Svila Betkin to talk about the uh, the next episode, which is Chapter 5, Survivors of the Flux. So I hope I can tempt you back for when we do the actual season finale in a couple of weeks' time, Simon. <laughs> He's uh, on the edge of his seat at the very thought of that. Uh, Doctor Who concludes Sunday the 5th of December on BBC One in the UK. Maybe you're a touch behind too. Well, it's all up on the BBC iPlayer as always. In fact, I think they leave it up for an entire year too. So there's plenty of opportunity for you to get your fix of Flux. And if you're struggling to understand exactly what's going on, 
just like we are. You know, maybe you could uh, watch them over and over again. Although I can't say that I'd recommend it on the strength of what we've had up to now. The whole of Doctor Who Flux will be yours to own from the 22nd of January on 2022. It's coming out on DVD and Blu-ray and in a steelbook too for those uh, those completists out there who can't get enough of those steelbooks on their shelves. I do see the appeal. It'll be some time potentially until I add this to my collection. I think they're going to they're going to have to be giving it away, Simon. No, uh, there's, uh, there's just no way I'm ever going to watch any of Flux ever, <laughs> ever again. It, it, it's too little too late now. I don't care how good or bad the last two episodes are. I'm, I'm, I'm done. I'm, I'm, you know, I don't care. You're talking about being done. That is the old girl. She's starting up and calling time on this trip in our TARDIS. I'll be back with another Type 40 soon. Look out for that wherever you found this. It could have been on the dedicated home feed for Type 40. Type40.podbean.com or on Spotify, TuneIn, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Podbay, Stitcher, you name it. We're pretty much all over it. We're also on YouTube, the world's largest streaming platform, on the Spacebook YouTube channel, and we're still on the fabulous fandom podcast network's own master feed that's loaded up with all those other great podcasts lots of treats for your ears daily maybe you'd like to have your say have we got it all right or have we got it all wrong what have we missed do you understand flux all perfectly and it really just is us (laughs) <laughs> get in touch and have your say correct us through our social media instagram or twitter at type 40 doctor who or there's that email to type 40 doctor who at gmail.com if you're feeling really really brave and fancy a real-time extra-dimensional chit chat session step into the type 40 facebook group loaded with the generations of regenerations of doctor who fans all getting together to uh, share their takes not just on flux week by week but on uh, classic new and future doctor who simon where can people connect with you and catch up with you on social media on facebook and whatever yeah they can only find me on facebook i can't be bothered with any of the rest of them so <laughs> come and say hello on facebook i'm there um uh, uh, if you come and look for doctor who the hoonatics and um, you'll find me there as the admin catch up with me i'm scattered throughout all of space and time but mostly on twitter and Instagram as the space book where I'm geeking out about everything inside and outside of the TARDIS, sharing some of my favourite pictures and memories of times past and uh, reporting really on what I think could be worth watching, reading or listening to in 2022 and beyond. Have I got a good hit rate? Probably not. Not lately. (laughs) It's been a pretty ropey year, to be fair. I love a good poster. So I find that I can be won over. I can be excited by some nice artwork really easily. <laughs> That's where I tend to get tripped up quite You're like, Oh, cheap, that looks good. That cheap. looks so exciting. It's being a graphic designer. There must be people out there who feel sort of the, sort of the same way. Yeah, I get that. <laughs> get it. Yeah, nice bit of Photoshop. And frankly, I'm anybody's. But yeah, thanks. <laughs> thanks for this again, Simon. And thanks to you for listening. We always have the time if you have the space here at Type 40. But that's it for this time.
Type 40, a Doctor Who podcast, is a Spacebook production for the Fandom Podcast Network with music by Problem Being.